Today's reading is from Psalm 42 and 43. Hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food, day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. At some off-the-map place around September 16th, 1925, in a plantation around the Mississippi Delta, Riley B. King was born. We know him by his legendary name, his stage name, B.B. King. And this man, the man behind Lucille, his black Gibson guitar, he was shaped by his mother, Nora Ella King. And she ensured, she She made sure every bit of her life that her son was now refined in Elkhorn Baptist Church under the preaching of Luther Henson. 
She made sure her son knew the church songbook and the gospels and the spirituals. But like every black man in Mississippi in early 20th century, King knew of another king in the South. King Cotton, as the slogan went from some pre-Civil War politicians, to highlight the importance of the cotton trade to the South's economy and therefore using it many times to legitimize the system of slavery. So how did King first hear the blues? It wasn't from a jukebox in a restaurant. He was mentored to sing the songs, the blues, by the voices of African-American men and women singing those church songs as they had sacks slung over their shoulders going up and down rows of cotton. It was heat, family, cotton, racial injustice, unless we forget the church that made the man. It was beauty with an intermix of chaos that brought about his music. And although on May 14th of this year at age 89, King passed away, he's still teaching us to sing songs, to pray prayers that we have far too often forgotten to pray. Like most blues songs, King's music forces the pain and the brokenness we all know too well into the light. It takes and reminds us how pains of the past continue to impact the present, how old relationships leave painful scars, and how social injustices still prevail. You know, King was beautifully brilliant in bringing this pain to bear, but he wasn't all that original in that particular vein. What he and others have oftentimes called the blues, Scripture has time and again has always called lament. Lament. Well, over the past couple weeks, we've been exploring the landscape of prayer and using the Psalms as our guide. And there may not be many of us in here who can authentically sing with King, Every Day I Sing the Blues. But we all know the pain at one time or another, and we can sing with King when he says, the thrill is gone. (laughs) That moment where there's a righteous dissatisfaction with the way things are when we find ourselves in the shadow or the valley of the shadow of death, a holy discontent. But I don't know about you, but is it okay to sing the blues when we put a very Christian word like holy next to a very unchristian word like content, discontent? I've wrestled through this. I've had deep moments of pain. And in those moments, I still feel like when I enter lament, could this be complaining? Because if there's anything I don't want to be in life, it's a whiner. So what do we do? When life throws shrapnel of a broken world such that it takes the wind out of us and we can barely breathe, let alone pray, how do we keep praying? What do we say? When life transitions to a minor key, We take a note from the Psalms that B.B. King knew how to play so well. We need to learn to pray the blues. We need to pray the blues. And I think this one lament that covers two Psalms, Psalm 42 and 43, is just the one to help us figure this out. The psalmist continues to guide us now in this landscape of prayer and shows us what it looks like to pray our longings when we go through the drought 
when we go down to the depths and as we look forward to the dwelling. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with me to Psalm 42. If you're using one of our community Bibles, you can find it on page 469. And the psalmist, he begins this prayer in verse 1 with an image. The image of a deer in the midst of a drought, frantically looking for water. The word that's used to describe this deer is panting. This is that loss of breath, this quick in-breathing and out-breathing because you're running from this place to that place, hoping maybe around the next corner, over the next hill, there's water. The tongue is sticking to the roof of your mouth in desperation. But the psalmist, he isn't looking for water. Look with me again at Psalm 42, verses 1 through 3. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, Where is your God? The psalmist, he finds himself in this place of desperation. His whole life is unraveling and he's looking for God and it seems like God's nowhere to be found. And he's so much in turmoil, he feels alone in the mess. He isn't sleeping. He isn't eating. Actually, in his anxiety and in his depression, his tears are the only thing that he's feasting upon. The, pray, give me, or the prayer, give me my, uh, this day my daily bread, has become tears. And he's wondering, he's, he's curious, where is God? And instead of the rooster crowing when the dawn comes, what greets him every day are those that are around him saying, God hasn't showed up yet, huh? Where is your God? Have you ever been there? If you haven't, you will someday. <laughs> Welcome to church. <clears throat> you know, feeling God's absence in the midst of a messed up world is one of those unavoidable realities. Even if you do everything right, which we won't, but if you were to scour this psalm, this lament that covers these two psalms, you won't find one hint of the lament coming from a sin that the psalmist has committed, something in which he has rebelled against God. To the contrary, he's praying, he's reaching out, he's seeking after God, he's doing everything he should be, and yet he's still left longing. Some of you know that feeling very well. You know, it's in these sorts of situations, at least when I find myself there, when the only authentic option is to pray the blues, I'd rather just be quiet and keep to myself. <laughs> Mainly because, at least for me, oftentimes I feel like I'm in the place of the blues because I did something wrong. And why am I going to talk to God about it? I just need to fix it. And if I can't fix it, then I'm not going to talk to God about it because I'd rather just keep it to myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> but that's not what we find here. Instead... What it means to be a child of God is being called into the freedom of lament. Those moments in life where we can admit that there are things that are broken around us, not because of us. That there are actually victims in the world from injustice. And there are things that are so broken in this world that we can't do anything to make right. So why lament? 
rather than just keeping quiet? Why do we need to learn to pray the blues? It's because when you are at your most thirsty, that's exactly when you need to pour out your soul in prayer. When you are at your most thirsty, that's exactly when you need to pour out your soul in prayer. And that feels counterintuitive. Why on earth would we do that? Because if you stay quiet, it only gets worse. It only gets worse. I, I was, found this article on The Onion, which if you're not familiar with it, is like a mockumentary news website. So this isn't a real article, just a preface, okay? And the art- article is titled, Study, Pretending Everything's Okay Works. <laughs> Listen to the short copy, okay? Cambridge, Massachusetts. A study released Thursday by researchers at Harvard University's Department of Psychology has found that the simple act of pretending one's life is not in complete shambles, threatening to collapse at any moment, works. Even when everything is coming apart at the seams and disaster is almost certainly imminent, putting up a good front for friends and loved ones makes everything better, said Professor Christine Wanamaker, who explained that smiling a lot and evasive answers were usually enough to get by. Tell everyone that things are fine and they will be fine. Just don't overthink it. When asked about her study's methodology, Wanamaker said the research was rock solid, had been looked over by a bunch of scientists, and definitely wasn't anything to worry about. (laughs) You know, we, we can laugh at this, right? Because the way it sounds is so ridiculous when you put it that way. And yet far too often that's the way we live, isn't it? And far too often, that's the way we even come to church. When the people of God gather together, I've had conversations on more more times than I care to admit where the conversation goes, oh, where were you last week? Well, I, I couldn't come. Why? I just couldn't plaster on the fake smile. Everyone else looks like they're doing great, and I just didn't want to be a burden to anyone. Well, you can't live like that. No one can live like that. The church isn't called to be that. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in despair. Lament is a gift to God's people. You know, every other place in our culture, we're expected to have our whole act together, aren't we? Just put on a smile and get through. But far too often, we're miserable. (laughs) Far too often, we're not okay. Far too often, we feel really distant from God when we're singing more than enough. Well, are you, God? I don't know if I can sing those words authentically this morning. Are you? Are you more than enough? You know, there's a reason that when you scour the Psalms, 150 of them, a majority of them are lament. A majority. That's because the church is called to be a lamenting community, a space, a place, a people where we can gather together and those who are wrestling through depression, wrestling through pain, frustration, overcome with the weight of injustice in our world, overcome with loss, death, disease, cancer. We can gather together and lament together that we are hurt, we are broken, and that's okay. We pour out our souls exactly when we feel like we're at our most thirsty. Lament is a gift to release. Otherwise, it's like holding your breath in a room to shake our fist at the rest of those who are breathing. It'll leave you with despair. 
and you'll find passed out on the floor. We need to pray the blues. When we're at our most thirsty, that's especially when we need to pour out our souls. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, next we come to see that as the psalmist pours out, he fights to remind himself who God is because he doesn't feel him right now, but he's going to remind himself who God is. And this war that's waging within him is anything but a walk in the park. Look with me at verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 42. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Do you catch the irony here? At the beginning of his prayer, he's like a deer in the midst of a drought, just looking for the still streams of God's presence. And now... He's surrounded by waterfalls. He's overcome by raging waves. And he's drowning in the depths. What happened here? The flood, the rush of the memories of who God is overtook him. And it made the the absence of God all the more acute. It's kind of like a daughter and her father going out for coffee every Saturday. And then suddenly he stops showing up and she's waiting at the door. The memories of going out to coffee with her father are beautiful, but they make the pain of the fact that he's not there now all the more acute. And the psalmist, he stops himself because he knows where he's going. And in verse 8, he goes, you are my God, you are my rock, you are steadfast in love. And then when you get to verse 9 and 10, it's like he jumps back to lament. But why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? I know who you are. He becomes kind of schizophrenic here in the moment. And, and he's bouncing back and forth with lament, tugging and pushing on his heart. And we can't miss this. This is one of those rare windows into an authentic wrestling of the soul that we've experienced far too many times. What's he wrestling with? Well, the psalmist, he believes something radical, that if we really believed it would change everything about the way we live. He actually believes that God is present and engaged in his life, that he's engaged in the details and the workings of how his vocation is played out, how he engages his family. I mean, if God can cause a a bush to burn and and not be extinguished and to be sustained in this flame, if God can part the waters, if he can rain down bread and bring about the plagues, if he can make walls crumble in Jericho, if he can make a shepherd a king, if he can take out a giant in war, what can't he do? On and on, and he remembers the history of what God has done in the past. And yet simultaneously... While he believes that down to his bones, he also feels the oppression of the enemy. Very real. He sees the unjust being very successful. He experiences the pain of the taunts of those around him saying, where is your God at anyway? And for him, the psalmist laments not just because there's injustice in the world. That's part of it. But it's what it communicates about where God is. 
If God is just, if he is holy, if he cannot stand the sight of sin and injustice is reigning around him, where is God? The gap he feels between what he believes and what he's experiencing is like a chasm and he feels separated from God. Because surely if God were here, he wouldn't let this happen. Surely, because I know who he is and all his greatness, he wouldn't let this happen. Where are you? And that is what is like a wound down to his very bones. He sings, he prays. And he's wading in these waters. And he's crying out, where are you, God? Are you going to let me drown here? You know what's astounding, though, amidst all of this? Is that when he comes with his accusations, he's at the height of his pain, wrestling through his questions. Look at who he's talking to about it. He's still bringing it to God. When he feels the most harshest experience of God's absence, he's still praying to God. And this is where we learn another component here in the Psalms on why we need to pray the blues. Because yes, when we are at our most thirsty, we need to pour out our souls in prayer, but it isn't just to anyone. We need to be pouring out our souls in prayer to God. And this has two magnificent implications here that we find in prayer. First, this means lament. Lament has room for strugglers. Lament has room for strugglers. You can be wrestling with God and what he's doing in your life and talk to him about it. You know, if you scour the ancient Near Eastern literature, all the other prayers that are written contemporaneous to the Psalms, you know what's fascinating? is that there's no harsher language, no more intense or raw of prayers than we find here in the Psalms compared to any other religious writing at this time. And as God in his divine sovereignty collected and organized his scriptures through the use of human writers and committees, then we find in the laments an invitation from God that whatever you're wrestling with, bring it to him. Bring it to him. Lament has room for strugglers. I've been there, and maybe you're there this morning. But there's another important component here, another important implication, is that lament, it has room for strugglers, but it has no room for complainers. What does that mean? (laughs) One commentator was really helpful for me in distinguishing between the two as we scour the pages of Scripture, and I want you to listen to what he writes here. He says, it's crucial to comprehend a lament is as far from complaining or grumbling as a search is from aimless wandering. A grumbler or complainer has already reached a conclusion, shut down all desire and postures with questions that are barely concealed accusations. A person who laments, they may sound like a complainer. They both vocalize anguish, anger, and confusion, but a lament, it involves an even deeper emotion because a lament is truly asking truly seeking, truly knocking to comprehend the heart of God. A lament involves the energy to search, not to shut down the quest for truth. It is a passion to ask rather than to rant and rave with already reached conclusions. And this last line, a lament uses the language of pain, anger, and confusion and moves toward God. I've heard someone say the difference between lament and complaining is complaining 
is whining to other people about God. Where lament is bringing your brokenness to God. Complaining is talking about how God has screwed you over. But lament is talking to God and saying, where are you? I feel like you've abandoned me. And do you see how that takes faith? Do you see how that takes faith? That when you feel like God is completely absent, that he's forgotten you and you're still talking to him. You may be holding on by a thread, <laughs> but it's faith nonetheless. And all it takes is a mustard seed, we learn from Jesus, yeah? Do you know who has an unlikely story of lament? Mother Teresa. Let me say that again. The Mother Teresa. Because that's how we think of her, right? <laughs> the Mother Teresa. Did you know that she had a deep crisis of faith that lasted 40 years? 40 years. After her death, they perused her letters. And there's a series of correspondence when she laments this great distance from God. And, and one of the letters, this is how she expresses her lament in a prayer. Lord, my God, you have thrown me away as unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there's no one to answer. No, no one, alone. Where is my faith? Even deep down, right in there is nothing. I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd in my heart. I'm told God loves me, and yet the reality of the darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Sounds a lot like the psalmist, doesn't it? You see, Mother Teresa, she knew how to pray the blues. She fought from being a complainer, if we know anything about Mother Teresa. And yet her life was wrought with struggle. When she was at her most thirsty, she continued to pour out her soul to God in prayer. And if that's you this morning... I think it's safe to say you're in pretty good company. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And after he echoes that refrain again, the psalmist, he brings his prayer to a close. He's walked through the drought. He's gone down to the depths. And suddenly he looks forward to a time where he will once again be in the dwelling of God. You see, in ancient Israel place, the land, according to God's promises, was everything. This was so crucial to the Israelite identity. The temple in Jerusalem, the holy hill of Zion. This was one of the only places in the world where heaven and earth overlapped, where God's presence was uniquely felt. This was the psalmist's home. And being far from the temple, being far from home, he felt like God's presence was also far from him. So where is the psalmist anyway? Well, in 42, Psalm 42, verse 6, he says, he's in the, the mountain ranges of Hermon in the land of Jordan, and he's looking back at Jerusalem. And he's on Mount Mazar, which we don't really know exactly where that is or even if it was a literal mount because it means little hill. And any hill is insignificant and small compared to the holy hill of Zion where God is placed. 
And then you go up to 42, verse 4. And the psalmist, he's remembering when all of God's people were gathered together at the temple, celebrating, praising God, but he's far from the temple. But something happens in Psalm 43, verse 3. He's still far from Jerusalem. He's still not in Zion. And yet, yet he looks forward to the day that God will send his light and bring him home. That he will guide his steps back to God's presence. And you even see within his prayer a progression where he approaches the dwelling and then he goes within the temple and he approaches the altar where God, his very exceeding joy, resides. What happens? How do we go from this disheartening longing of looking to the past to now a hope-filled longing of looking to the future? Oftentimes in lament... There's a moment, and here there's a refrain that happens three times. It happens in 42 verse 5, 42 verse 11, and 43 verse 5, where the psalmist tells his depressed and anxious soul, be quiet and listen. All of those worrying thoughts that are saying, where are you, God? And all of those frantic feelings that are saying, how could you, God? He tells them, step back from the mic, and I'm going to preach a better word. To myself right now. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? We've already answered that question over and over again. It's the sense of God's absence in his life. And every one of our complaints in a very real sense and every one of our laments ultimately is a sense of feeling like God has abandoned us, that God isn't present, that God isn't protecting us. And it's at that moment the psalmist takes his soul as if to personify and sits it down in the chair and stares it right in the eyes and says, but God is trustworthy. I know you feel that way, soul, but God is trustworthy in his steadfast love, he says in verse eight. That's his covenantal love, his promised love that he will not abandon his people. Although every bit of his feelings feels like he's abandoned, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And he keeps repeating this. And repeating this three times over in the prayer. He's not home, not yet. He feels far from God. But because God is there back home, unlike anywhere else, he still longs and he hopes and he remembers God's character. Even though every bit of his feelings, every bit of his experience feels very disconnected. Because of God's steadfast love, hope in him. He'll bring me home one day. One day again, I'll be able to praise him. And you see, in a very real sense, this is our song. Because we aren't home. It's why we pray the blues. And I'll even go so far as to say that each one of us should feel a disconnect. We should have a discontent with the way things are on a daily basis. I mean, is this really what you want? A world full of racial injustice, a world full of poverty, of death, of sickness, of sin, of broken marriages, of forgotten children. Is this the best the world has to offer? Is this the best that God has to offer? If you think it is, then you have really low standards. Wake up. The church is called to be a lamenting community because this isn't our home. And in a fallen world, the greatest 
of all pains is when we cry out to him and he feels unbearably absent. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so we pray the blues. But also at this point in history, we're a little further on than the psalmist was and what God has been doing. This side of the gospel, we have an even better gospel to preach to ourselves, a better news to encourage our souls in the midst of trouble. In John chapter 1, we hear that God himself took on flesh and the word is literally tabernacled among us. That God didn't have to remain in the holy of holies of a temple but took on flesh and came among us because he loved us. And a new hill became one of the most holy of hills. The Mount of Crucifixion where the God-man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, became as the author of Hebrews waxes so eloquently a new altar where his death was sufficient, one sacrifice for all, the scriptures say. That we no longer have to look to sacrifices ever again because Christ has done it for us. And in his death, we remember the God-man who left his home and paid our penalty and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Laments on the cross so that we no longer have to know the pain of rejection, but can know the joy of acceptance. In his defeat, or his death, that appeared to be in a defeat, he defeated every obstacle of sin, shame, and brokenness so that we might go home. And three days later, he rose again, walked this earth for 40 days, and then ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. And what did he tell his disciples? I go to prepare a place for you. And we're not left to mystery as to what this place will be like. Once again, we hear from John as he's revealed in the book of Revelation, our new and eternal home that is to come. In Revelation 21, listen. And even listen to kind of how these themes of the psalmist prayer connect. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God. So Jesus goes up, but he brings his city back down with him. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, with all people who are his. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Don't you long for that? When we know the pain in our world, when we hear about the refugees in Syria, don't you lament for this? You know, one of my favorite stories of B.B. King in concert was um, 2008. He was 82 years old, still jamming. <laughs> and his concert, he played to a packed house, and it finally came to a close around 2 a.m. And the crowd begins to dissipate. And there's only about 30 or so folks left, and they're coming up for autographs. And then suddenly, B.B. King leans back, and then he nods to the rest of the band and he leans into when the saints go marching in and vamps on it for 20 minutes. 
And if you're here this morning and you find your identity in Jesus, if he's your Lord and Savior, I think that is the most beautiful climax to the blues. Every time we pray the blues, we're offered hope. It may not be celebration. It may not be bells and whistles. Sometimes the pain is too deep to go there. And it may be somber hope, but it's hope nonetheless. And I love the line of when the saints go marching in that we sing together at different points where it says, some say this world of trouble is the only one we need, but I'm waiting for that morning when the new world is revealed. You know, I think the Christian life can be best described as a long longing in the same direction. A long longing in the same direction. And so today we lament. We pray the blues. We pour out our souls when we feel we're most thirsty and we pour them out to God because we aren't home yet. But one day we will be. Until then, we pray the blues and we say to ourselves, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather as your people and we remember the great lengths that you as the triune God has gone to redeem a people for himself. Who are we that you're mindful of us? You've sent your Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to groan with all of creation. Paul writes in Romans 8, for the day that you will finally make all wrongs right. And this morning we groan but we do not grieve and we do not groan as those without hope. As we hear about the pain of so many in the Middle East who are longing for refugee status, the injustice that takes place, many of our brothers and sisters who are among that number, and many others who are spread across the Middle East of our brothers and sisters who experience great persecution, Those across the globe who in the name of Jesus lose their lives or lose influence because of the name of Jesus. It is so much more readable in their prayers that they lament and cry out as we read in scriptures, come Lord Jesus, come. May we not be satisfied in trivial comforts as your people, but may we learn to pray the blues more. May we weep with those who weep all the while holding fast to your promises. We do pray this in the name of Jesus, our resurrected Lord and Savior. Amen.